Heavenly Father, we are so thankful today that you are the God who hears, that you invite us to cry out to you. And these cries don't fall on deaf ears, but on the, the God, the only God, the true and living God, who is mighty and powerful, but who loves us with an everlasting love. And so today I pray, God, that you would meet us in this moment, that you would teach us from your word, and that we would find ourselves in this time today drawn nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The author and pastor Max Lucado tells the story, true story, of a parakeet by the name of Chippy who had a very bad day. Now, Chippy was a chatty little parakeet who uh, used to like to sing a lot, but that all changed on this very fateful day. It all began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner with Chippy still in it. So as she was cleaning the the cage and she was almost finished, the telephone rang and it rang and instinctively she turned and Chippy was gone, sucked right into the vacuum cleaner. Well, the, the owner, she panics, she turns off the vacuum, opens it up, rips open the bag and there was Chippy covered with dirt and in shock. Well, she did what any, you know, parakeet lover would do. She took her little bird and ran him to the bathroom and put him under the faucet and ran water on him. And then afterwards, she realized that he was cold and wet, so she took her blow dryer and blasted the little bird. (laughs) Chippy had no idea what hit him. I mean, one minute he was, you know, sitting there just singing away, and suddenly he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over just like that. Well, a couple days later, one of the friends of this lady asked her, hey, how's Chippy doing? And she responded by saying, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just kind of sits and stares. You could say that Chippy was chipper no more, okay? (laughs) Has the song been sucked out of you? David could relate to that. Psalm 25 is attributed to David, and although scholars are uncertain of the time frame of when he wrote this psalm, most believe that it was written during that time when his son Absalom rebelled against him and launched a takeover of his kingdom. It was a very hard time. It was a time of great betrayal in David's life, a time of great pain. And in the second half of this psalm, we get a glimpse of the pain that David was going through. We see his difficulty in verse 15. He describes this as being in a net, feeling trapped on all sides. We see his desolation in verse 16, that he feels deserted and afflicted. And this is understandable, knowing that that one of his trusted advisors, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, had deserted him and went and joined Absalom in this takeover attempt. We see his distress in verse 17 and 18 when he describes it as his troubles feeling larger than life. Maybe you feel that way today. 
You know, sometimes when we're going through difficulties and trials, they, they can feel larger than life, like they're just pressing in upon us. That's how David was feeling. And then we see his danger in verse 19, that his enemies, he said, were coming at him from every single side. David's pain. You know, life has a way of knocking us around. It has a way, life does, of hitting you when you're not looking. And betrayals can feel like a sucker punch that doesn't just knock the wind out of you, but it knocks the very life out of you. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like Chippy, sucked in, washed up, blown over, that you've been beat up and knocked down. Not knocked out, but you've been, been beat up pretty good. And, and it's, you've been tempted to give up. You've been tempted to tune out. You've been tempted to throw in the towel, to give in to bitterness and lose your focus and lose your hope and really live as a perpetual victim. You know, in times like that, what we really need is divine guidance to get us back on our feet to help us to press forward. And here in verses 1 through 14 of Psalm 25, David gives us some great principles for seeking divine guidance. And this is what I want to unpack for us in our time today. And I want you to notice that it begins with prayer. David's prayer for divine guidance. There's three things that he prays for. The first is he says, Lord, protect me. We see this in verses one through three. Look at it again. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed, but let those who be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Notice that first phrase, though. He says, I lift up my soul. If you were here last week at first service, my son Aaron, who was visiting from Oklahoma, he taught last week. And during first service, he gave us a great explanation on the word soul. You know, the word soul, it comes from the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word nephesh, And it's used over 700 times in the Old Testament. But it's often translated throat. And that's interesting, I think. I think that's something that we think, that, that's kind of weird. The soul, the throat. I mean, how, how do those two things go together? But when you think about what the throat allows you to do, it actually makes sense. You see, you breathe and take in air through your throat. Everything that you eat comes into your body. It passes through the throat. Everything that you drink comes into your body. It, it passes through the throat. And so you could say this, the throat is essential for keeping you alive. And for that reason, the word soul has also, or this concept of the soul has been translated as your life, your heart, and your very being. So when David says, I lift up my soul... What he's really saying is, Lord, all that I am, I'm lifting up to you and I'm placing it in your hands. We're talking here about total trust, total vulnerability. You see, it's a vulnerable thing. Some would even call it maybe a dangerous thing to place your life in the hands of another. It takes a lot of trust. And I'll be honest with you. 
I have trouble with that in certain things in my life. For example, I have a hard time riding on the back of a motorcycle with somebody else that's driving. I don't want to do that. I don't like that. I, I don't. It, to me, it's it's you're at their 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 total mercy. You know, you're sitting on the back, just hoping that they they know what they're doing. Now they can ride on the back with me anytime that they want, but I don't want to get on the back with them. Remember that game that we used to play in when you were younger, where you would stand and you know fall backwards and people would catch you. I hate that game. I don't like that game because I've seen too many of my friends in playing that game let people fall. And so I don't want to do that. It's like, I don't trust you guys. I'm not going to fall backward because I don't believe that, that you're going to catch me. And oftentimes when we've had people who have let us down, who have dropped us, so to speak... It can make us be those who we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. We don't want to trust. And that same mentality can creep into our relationship with God. But David doesn't do that here. Even though David had experienced a lot of betrayal and hurt from others, he's still ready to make himself totally vulnerable to God. Why? David's willingness to lift up his soul to lift up his very being before the Lord is based on relationship. Look at verse 1 again. He says, I lift up my soul. And then in verse 2 he says, Oh my God, I trust in you. If you like to write in your Bible, I want to encourage you to circle that phrase, my God. David doesn't say, I lift up my soul God or oh God. He makes it personal. He makes it relational. He says, you are my God. David echoed a similar thing when he wrote Psalm 23. And he said, the Lord is my shepherd. Not the shepherd, not a shepherd. I mean, that would be true, but he was saying the Lord is my shepherd. There was a relationship there that David had with the Lord as his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now here's what's interesting. There's a lot of people that know Psalm 23. It's a passage that's on coffee cups and plaques and posters, and, and it's something that, that people often learn early on when they start going to church as they learn Psalm 23. A lot of people know the psalm, but here's the question. Do they know the shepherd? You know, there was an actor in Hollywood who... Years ago, he was having a big birthday bash, rented out a hotel room and, and or a hotel ballroom, and there was a whole bunch, hundreds of people, friends of his that came to this uh, banquet and this party that he was having. And during the course of the night, he was doing you know bits and pieces of plays and, and movies that he had been in, and he was taking requests. Well, there was an old pastor, he was 85 years old, and he had known this actor when he was a little boy. This actor went to his church. And this old pastor raised his hand and said, can you recite Psalm 23? And the actor said, yeah, I, I know that one. I can recite it. And he said, I'll do it on one condition if you come up here afterwards and, and repeat it or recite it after I do. And so the pastor agreed. And, and so the actor gets up and he recites Psalm 23 with all of this flair and charisma. I mean, he really, really got into it. And when he was done, everybody there just broke into a thundering applause. And then this old pastor got up there. 
And he recited Psalm 23, and when he was done, there was not a dry eye in the entire place. Everyone was so moved. The way that he recited Psalm 23 just touched their heart. And one of the friends of the actor said to him afterwards, he said, you know, when you recited Psalm 23, it was amazing. It was a great performance, but I got to tell you, it didn't compare with that old pastor. What do you think the difference was? And the actor answered very insightfully when he said this. He said, well, I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. You see, that's the difference. A lot of people, they know the psalm, but do they know the shepherd? Can you say today, like David, he is uh, of Jesus. He is my God. He's not just God, but he is my God. Are you living in that type of relationship with him? You know, that's really how Jesus describes salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 17, he said, and in this, this is eternal life, he said. And when the Jews talked about eternal life, they didn't just speak of it in terms of a longevity of life, but they spoke of it as a quality of life that happens right now and living in relationship with God. He said, this is eternal life. This is what every one of you is looking for and searching for. This is eternal life that you would know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. But get this, the word he used there for know, in the Greek it's the word gnosko, and it means to know God in an intimate, personal relationship. It's to know him intimately in other words. It's not just knowing about him, it's not just knowing Bible verses and Bible truths, but it's knowing him and living in that intimate relationship with him. And I ask you, do you know him in that way today? If you don't, I want to encourage you to enter into that relationship because that's why Jesus came. Jesus left heaven and came to this earth and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and three days later rose again from the dead to give us life so that we who were sinners and our sin had separated us from God could be brought back into a daily, living, intimate relationship with him. That's why he came. And Jesus invites you into that relationship today. So notice, David's willingness to lift up his soul was based on his relationship with God, and it was based on God's proven character and proven faithfulness in David's life. That's why David in the Psalms refers to God as his strength, as his rock, as his stronghold, as his refuge, as his fortress, David had this this relationship with God where he knew him in that way. And you might say, well, I I don't know. I haven't been walking with God long enough. I don't know him in that way. Well, we can know him through the pages of Scripture and in the lives of those that we see in the Bible who knew him in that way, that he is faithful and that he is true. Notice how David reiterates this cry for protection at the end of this psalm in verse 20, where he says, keep my soul. And I love this. At the beginning, he says, I'm lifting up my soul to you. And at the end, he's saying, and I want you to keep it. Lord, I'm giving all that I am to you. Lord, I'm giving my heart. I'm giving my being. I'm, I'm, I'm not just lifting it to you for a moment, but Lord, I want you to keep it. I want you to protect it. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and of righteousness preserve, uh, 
uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And then he prays this prayer for all of Israel. Redeem o Israel, O God, out of their troubles. So the first thing we see that David asked the Lord for is to protect him. The second thing he asked the Lord for is that the Lord would pilot him. Notice verses four and five. And in these two verses, we see two principles for divine guidance. The first is this, if you're taking notes, David was willing to be led. Notice verse four. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. David was willing to be led. He says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, and teach me. He's expressing here a willingness to be led by the Lord wherever God might want to take him. Have you ever gone, as you're walking out of Costco, have you ever picked up one of those travel brochures they have there? It's interesting if you have ever looked at one of those. They you know, offer these pictures of these, you know, different vacations that you can go on, these colorful photos of these exciting getaways, you know, a safari in Botswana or, you know, huts on the water at Bora Bora there in Tahiti or London or Paris. I mean, it's basically they're, they're telling you your vacation dreams are just a click away. You know, God doesn't hand out brochures. God does not say, follow me and I'll give you an exotic, exciting experience. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you healthy and wealthy. No, God says, follow me no matter what. Wherever I'm going to take you, I just want you to trust me. I love you, that I'm for you, that I'm with you. Follow me no matter what. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey guys, I want you to know this. In this world you're going to have tribulation. In this world, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. In this world, your follower mind, there's going to be difficulty. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have difficulty. But then he said, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the worlds. Remember when he was sending his disciples out? He said as, as he was sending them, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, in case you didn't know this, wolves eat lambs. So he's saying, hey, I'm sending you out into a hostile world that is going to be against you. The point being is followers of Christ were not immune to danger and difficulties. Christians get cancer and die. Christians lose their job. Christians get sicknesses and disease. Christians suffer betrayal and heartbreak. We are not immune to danger and difficulty, but we don't go through those things alone. You see, Jesus, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, promises to stand with us in the fire. He promises to go with us through the storm and to help us make it to the other side. And he asks us to follow him, no matter what, to trust him. Remember after the resurrection, Jesus is there on the shores of Galilee, he's meeting with his disciples, and he starts talking to Peter, and he starts telling Peter everything that Peter's going to go through. 
how he's going to suffer, the difficulty that is awaiting him. He wanted to prepare Peter. And as Peter is listening to this, he gets to the point where it's like, okay, enough. And he points to John and says, what about him? What's going to happen to him, Lord? And Jesus says, don't you worry about him. What does it matter to you, what I have for him? You follow me. Peter, I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. And this is the point. Each one of us has our own journey with Jesus. And sometimes in the journey that we have with Jesus, it can seem like to to us personally that it's harder than maybe what's going on with somebody else. What's going on in, in, in their life? And we can look at them and go, how come I'm going through, through this and they seem to have it so easy? I don't get it, Lord. And I think the Lord would say to us, like he said to Peter, don't worry about them. You follow me. You trust me. And here's something that I've learned. Is that when I've seen people who have gone through great difficulties and great pain in their following of Jesus and those who have really handled that in the right way, the, the great pain and the great difficulty was usually followed by great opportunity. A great opportunity for them to be used in a greater capacity by the Lord. That that was part of the, the plan in all of that. The Bible says that we're able to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. But I also want you to notice there how how David says, lead me in your truth and teach me. And in that phrase is a very important insight because that David is showing us here that divine guidance is connected to the word of God. That if we want to be led by God, we need to understand that it, it comes through his word. We're told in Psalm 119 verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That God, he leads us through his word. Oftentimes, you know, we want to see the big picture opened up for us. And we want to see, you know, like that point A to point Z. And then we can see clearly where we're running. But God doesn't often lead us in that way. It's, it's like more like a, a dark, we're in the dark and there's a flashlight and it's a lamp and it's one step at a time. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In Psalm 119, verse 9, it says, How can a young man cleanse his way? And then it answers the question by saying, By taking heed according to your word. And then in verse 11, it says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It was Pastor Chuck Smith who used to say, This book, the Bible, will keep you from sin. If you follow it. But sin will keep you from this book. This book, if you walk in it, it'll keep you from sin. It shows you how to live uprightly in a way that honors God. But sin creates a a, a wedge in your relationship with God that, that keeps you from even wanting to get into the Word of God. This book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. And it's interesting, as a pastor, I meet people all the time who are seeking guidance from the Lord but who are ignoring or rejecting what God's word says. All the time. In my many, many years now of ministry, I'm sitting down with somebody and saying, well, you know what God says about that? And they're like, I'm sorry, I can't follow that. Or I don't agree with that. Or that doesn't you know, pertain to my situation. And they ignore God's word or they reject God's word and they end up living lives full of pain and misery 
because of choices that they are making that go against the word of God. Give me an example. I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation. Somebody's getting into a relationship with somebody that's not a Christian. And you say, hey, you know what? God tells us in his word. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And then he tells us why. He says, because what in common has light with darkness? And the answer is nothing. And so he says, hey, because he loves you, he says he wants you to, to not move in that direction and get in that kind of relationship. And I can't have time. Oh, that, that doesn't apply to me. I'm going to be the exception. I'm going to lead them to the Lord. They think that they're going to pull that person up. But in reality, what often happens most of the time, 99.9% of the time, that person ends up pulling them down. Or how many times I've had this conversation. You know, the Bible says that we are to abstain from sexual immorality and we're to know how to possess our bodies for sanctification and honor. And so you need to abstain from premarital sex or extramarital sex. And and you have somebody who says, but oh, but we love each other so much and we're going to get married. I think it's okay. No, it's not. And there's always great ramifications. God tells us to be good stewards with our money. And yet I've seen people over and over again who, you know, buy into these get quick rich schemes and they end up in debt and despair. And I could go on and on and on with people who have ignored or rejected the word of God and they end up being in this place of despair because of it. But for the person who trusts in the Lord and who is seeking to live according to God's word, they discover it makes sense. They discover it brings life. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 54, your statues have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. In other words, your word is so refreshing as I'm on this journey and I'm obeying your word. I'm I'm finding, Lord, that Father does know best. And it's refreshing to my heart. So we see here that David was willing to be led and he sought guidance from the word of God. But I also want you to notice that he was willing to wait to be led. Notice verse five. He says, on you, I wait all the day. And he repeats that later on in the psalm. You know, the biggest problem that we have living in this culture today is we want everything right now, right? Amazon, you just go on and click, it's going to be here tomorrow. In fact, it might even get here this afternoon. You know, I'm hungry, we got Grubhub, or we've got, you know, these different services. They're going to bring the food right to me. And I'm not, I like those things. I'm not knocking that, but it can create this tendency in our hearts that we think, you know, that we should get everything and we deserve everything right now. And we carry that over into our relationship with God. But here's an important principle of divine guidance is that God is never in a hurry. You realize that? How many of you have discovered that God's time frame is a lot slower than yours? (laughs) I sure have. Oh, man. God's never, ever in a hurry, but his timing is always perfect. You know, God always answers prayer. Sometimes he answers, God answer? You know, is he, really? he always answers prayer. He answers yes, and we're like, woohoo! Sometimes he answers no, and we're like, oh, bummer. But a lot of times he answers wait. 
And the answer of wait comes in silence. It's like he hasn't answered at all. And, and so he's saying, hey, I just want you to wait on me. But this can be hard for us. Waiting. My grandson, Josiah, he's four. He is obsessed right now with the, the song, Spider-Man song by Michael Buble. If you haven't heard that, it's a great rendition. I won't sing it for you, but um, it's a great rendition of that song. And he loves it. And every single time we get in the car, Poppy, play Spider-Man. And I'm like, okay, okay, buddy, I'll put it on, but just wait a minute. Oh, Poppy, play Spider-Man. You know, he's over and over and over again because it's hard. For his four-year-old brain to, to think about waiting. But that can also be hard for us. That's where a lot of us break down is we get impatient. And so we act without God's guidance. And then we complain when things go wrong. But often when facing an important decision, we will find that everything is cloudy at first. But the guidance that we are seeking will only come as we wait on the Lord. You know who's in a hurry? Satan's the one who's in a hurry. Satan is the one who says, hurry, act now. It's now or never. You're going to miss out on this opportunity if you don't do this. That is never true for the child of God. If it's in God's plan for you, it doesn't matter. You wait on him and he's going to lead you. Satan guides by impulse. God guides us as we wait. And we learn, or we can liken the way that divine guidance works to a glass filled with cloudy water. You ever seen that? You fill a glass, got cloudy water. What happens, though, when you wait? All the soot sinks to the bottom, and suddenly the glass is clear. That's how it is. Sometimes we enter into life and we're seeking to step out and it can just seem so cloudy and it can seem so confusing. But as we wait, things start to settle in God's timing. And you know, God, he can't lead us if we are rushed and hurried and running here and there and everywhere, always responding to pressure. We must learn to wait on the Lord, to be still and know that he is God. So David was wanting and willing and waiting to be led. So David prays, Lord, protect me. Lord, pilot me. And then we also see that he prays, Lord, pardon me in verse 6 and 7. Notice he says, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. For your goodness sake, O Lord, For do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to your mercy. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. And then in verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. This is what David understood. David knew better than many that sin in his life makes it impossible to be led and directed by God because sin clouds our communication with God. David understood that sin served like a wedge in his relationship with God. And so he wants to make sure that his relationship was right with the Lord. And I want you to understand here that David bases his understanding on God's goodness and God's mercy and God's loving kindness. He twice says, Lord, please pardon me for your goodness sake. Please forgive me for your name's sake. His focus was on who 
God was. And he knew that God was patient and God was compassionate and God was kind and that God takes pleasure. Do you realize this? In forgiving and restoring. It blesses his heart. When we come to him in full repentance, and what that means is we're turning from our sin, we're turning away from it, we're doing a 180, and we're turning to the Lord. God, he loves that, and he is so quick and so ready to restore us. And so I ask you this question today. Have you been seeking guidance from the Lord in some area of your life, and yet it just seems cloudy? It seems like you're not getting any answer. Could it be because there's a sin issue? That you're living in sin and in compromise and that is the thing that's clouding the communication, the frequency in the antenna of your heart with God. You need to deal with the sin in order to open up the door for God to be able to communicate with you. The final thing I want us to see is what I would call the prerequisite for divine guidance. And it's really the, the key in this whole thing. And we see this in verses 12 through 14. It's, it's the right attitude, having the right attitude toward the Lord. Notice he says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who, there it is again, fear him, and he will show them his covenant. What's the proper attitude that we need in order to be led by the Lord? It's when a person is seeking to walk in the fear of God. In the Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. That's the starting place. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? Does it mean that I'm living my life always just, you know, cowering, waiting that God's going to, you know, he's going to blast me. He's going to hit me, you know, over the head if I step out of line. No, no, no. That's not what it's saying at all. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is having a reverence and a respect for who God is. The fear of the Lord is when we realize that he's God and we are not. The fear of the Lord is when we realize that I'm not the measure of all things, but I am being measured by the God who measures all things, which means that that to walk in the fear of the Lord is death to our narcissistic egos and self-assured opinions. The fear of the Lord involves an understanding that God can absolutely crush me if he wanted to, but instead he loves me and he accepts me in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that just blows me away. That just blows my mind because I know me. I know the things that I've done. I know the wickedness in my heart. And the fact that God loves me when he could crush me, but instead he's forgiven me, that just blows my mind and motivates me to now want to live to please him, to not do anything that would cause him grief. To, it motivates me to walk in holiness because I realize that my God is holy and I want to be close to him and living in that right relationship with him, preoccupied with his glory and who he is. 
So walking in the fear of the Lord, it's the starting place really that puts us in that place where it's like, okay, God, I'm yielded and I'm ready that you can lead me. In fact, notice how David frames this in verses 8 through 10. He says, good and upright is the Lord. It's like, God is so awesome. Therefore, because of that, he teaches sinners in the way. In other words, he wants to lead us. But here's the key. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches in his way, and all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is what David is doing here. He's describing a heart of humble submission that is willing to be led by the Lord. A heart of some humble submission. That's the person who's walking in the fear of God. Humbly submitted to the Lord. It's coming to him and saying, hey, you're the Lord, not me. It's you. You're greater than than I am. It's saying, Lord, lead me. I want to be yielded to you. And because of that, I want to be yielded, submitted to your word. And notice what he promises. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth toward that person. When we approach the Lord in humble submission, he is willing and ready to guide us. That's why I tell you all the time, God says twice, once in Peter, once in James, that God resists the proud. For those who are proud, for those who are like, hey, I can do this on my own. Those who are like, their mentality is, I got this. God's like, he resists them. But he gives grace, undeserved favor, to those who are humble in heart. David would say in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. That means a broken and contrite heart, God doesn't move away from them. God's not put off by our brokenness. God's not like, oh, you're, you're broken and messed up. You know, I don't want anything. No, a broken and contrite heart, he doesn't move away from, he moves toward. He comes to us in our brokenness, in our humbleness, in our submission to him. He moves to act on our behalf. He's ready to lead us and to guide us. I think Jesus has a simple way of summarizing everything that we've looked at in this psalm. You know, Jesus had a way of summarizing things. He summarized all the commandments by saying this. All the commandments could be summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in that, he says, there are all the commandments. Well, here, we, I think Jesus also summarizes everything that we're seeing here in Psalm 25 about divine guidance when he said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, when you are seeking first the kingdom, you are seeking first the king of the kingdom, Jesus. You're seeking first the king. And the word first is the important word in that in that verse. Because if he would have just said, hey, seek the kingdom, you could say, like, oh yeah, I'll get to that one day. Or I'll put that on the list. But when he says seek first, he's saying this needs to be the priority of your heart, the priority of your life. Seek first the kingdom. And when you acknowledge the kingship of Jesus, there is reverence. 
There's a fear of the Lord that you're realizing he's the king and not me. It's about his kingdom and not my kingdom. And I want to seek first my king. And I want to seek first his kingdom. And I want to walk in that. And I want to live and, and seek first his righteousness. And the way that I live and the way that I conduct my life. And Jesus says, when you do that, all these things will be added to you. Things are going to fall into place, in other words. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you love us, that you desire, like a shepherd, to lead us. Lord, I'm thankful that so many of us here in this room, Lord, that, that we can say like David, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my God. That we don't just know about you, but we, we know you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that you've forgiven us.